This time of year, things in the Caribbean are starting to sound a little bit like this. In just a few days, at the end of February, it will be Carnival, which means parties and parades and music. But last year in the Caribbean island of Haiti, Carnival was called off. Last year, there was no carnival because the situation was so tense and security concerns were so high. That's Jeremy Dupin. He's been Al Jazeera's producer in Haiti for years. This year, carnival, or carnival as the Haitians call it, is making a comeback. But now, days before it begins, there are new problems. The police are staging protests. Bleachers along the parade route went up in flames. Prices are rising. And one in three Haitians need food assistance, according to the UN. More than a million more than last year. Ten years after a deadly earthquake struck this country, it's like it still can't catch a break. And we wanted to know how what happened then is affecting Haiti now. I just want to give you a heads up that this episode will contain stories of rape and assault. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. It's 10 years since a 7.0 earthquake struck Haiti, leveling its capital, Port-au-Prince, and killing more than 300,000 people. 300,000. Jeremy, what do you remember from the earthquake that day? It's not a very very good memory. A wall almost fell on me. I mean, I, I start seeing people bleeding. I saw, you know, houses collapse. I mean, it was just awful just to see the very first second. It's being called a catastrophe of major proportions. Haiti is battling the aftermath of a devastating natural disaster. When you had people under concrete. We need more people down here. You had rescue team coming from around the world to get people out. Help is on its way. You just didn't know what was going to happen. This magnitude of this crisis was just unbelievable. The Caribbean island nation of Haiti has been rocked by its biggest earthquake in more than 200 years. In the meantime, you had the survivors, children, pregnant women, there were many displaced people. People was living where, you know, there was no water, there was not enough food. We are at one of the spontaneous uh, settlements. The aid was very slow. It was very hard. I saw a a local Red Cross worker delivering some water, and that's the first time we've seen any kind of aid being delivered to this particular camp uh, in the last few days. And talking to people here, they do confirm that they haven't had any food aid and they haven't had any water in days. February, a month after the earthquake, people were protesting because, as you mentioned, so much was needed. And some of the largest protests that the country was seeing were in the Petionville neighborhood of Port-au-Prince, of the capital. Can you talk to me about that neighborhood? It's a wealthier area, from what I understand, right? That's where the wealthy Haitian and international hang around there. One of the largest camp was on a golf course right next to the U.S. Embassy. There were, it's, it was thousands of family there. I, I can't remember the numbers exactly, but it was like thousands of family. But the relief effort 
was so slow. There was never an, a, enough supplies, food, water, etc. People were mourning their loss, but in the meantime, they were hungry. Covering an event of that magnitude every day and when you were facing that, I mean, there was no way that you can even sleep at night. And then there was a new problem. People started getting sick. You and your team, Al Jazeera correspondent, and of course you were the producer at that time, you were one of the first to learn about this. Ten months on, I was in early October, there were signs of people with a pattern of vomiting and diarrhea. My son took me to the hospital. They took care of me, but I thought I was going to die. They didn't even have epidemiologists. The scientists was maybe thinking that the sanitary condition... Or lack of sanitary conditions were the problem. I was making phone calls. I was, I was trying to see where is the most cases coming from. And my contact tell me that around the Mirabale area, there was a lot of people getting sick. The river that runs through the town of Mirabale is a lifeline for people here. It keeps them cool, clean, and enriches the soil. And then we start, you know, talking to the neighbors. And they told us that they saw soldiers, Nepalese soldiers, inside of the base that was sick, vomiting, with diarrhea, and that was receiving the IV and they were not supposed to disclose that information. I, I, I felt like we should just go and check it out and, and see what's going on. So they went. And it was like we were on a crime scene. It's like they were covering a crime scene. Al Jazeera's cameras photographed what appeared to be sewage leaking from the base to a nearby river shortly after the epidemic started. That big sewage reserve that, that was leaking to that river was right next to the base. And in that river, people used that water to bathe, to drink, to do everything. So sewage from latrines on base. That was the Nepalese battalion that was there. So we were making a little research because just a few months before that Nepalese battalion come to Haiti, there was a cholera outbreak in Nepal. Al Jazeera was the first news channel on the scene. When we broke the story, we tracked the epidemic as it ripped across the country, leaving dozens, then hundreds, and soon thousands of Haitians dead in its wake. We were having scientists that are coming to the OCS. Yeah, this is cholera, and it could be most likely from the base. We don't have a good clean water system. We don't have good sewage. People was taking care of their loved ones and they are getting infected too. A lot of people was thinking that was some kind of disease related to voodoo or something because it was so unexplicable and Unreal. People 
people were getting sick so fast. So how did the United Nations react? Well, I mean, at first, they make epidemiologists come and they went to the Dominican Republic in laboratory to see what it is. And they found it was a strand of cholera. And that strand was very similar to the strand that they found in East Asia, most likely in Nepal. So for a long time, they had the result, but they never wanted to take responsibility for it. Human rights lawyers have called the UN's initial denials a disgrace. Nobody wanted to talk. Nobody wanted to talk to us. Fisher's office. Oh, hi. Is that Nigel Fisher's office? Hi there. I'm trying to get through to Nigel Fisher's office. I remember at the UN in New York, someone from the legal team of the former Secretary General Ban Ki-moon read a piece of paper to see that they were sorry for any Haitian that lost a loved one. The letter was uh, one paragraph about how the UN was sorry about the cholera and the harm that it caused, several paragraphs about all the things they are doing to combat cholera, and then a paragraph at the end saying that they were not going to respond justly to the cholera victims. And that's it. At the end of the mandate of Ban Ki-moon, they accepted their responsibility and bringing the cholera to Haiti and pledged to spend $2 billion to help Haiti to build a better sanitary system for uh, portable water and, and the sewage system, something that still never happened, a natural disaster that no one could control. It's difficult to digest a group of people that come to help. And these people just literally bring you death. Then you also discovered something else, that these UN peacekeepers were leaving behind in Haiti children. I remember the first time when I found that young girl, she was explaining me, she was coming from school and used to pass by the military base and one day she passed by and one soldier called her. She told me that she thought he was going to give her uh, food. And that's when he covers her mouth and whipped her. Wow. How? That was her first sexual relation, that kid. And she came out bleeding from the base to her house. How did you find out about her story? Because she came out bleeding. Everybody saw her. And then she, she goes home. She got expelled from her school. All the other kids was bullying her, calling her Madame Minister. Minister was the acronym for the UN mission. So they were literally calling her the soldier's wife. Even if I made the effort to go to school, it's like I have this thing in my brain that's always disturbing me. I took it to the UN, and the UN acknowledged that she was telling the truth. And only what they did 
it's just send that battalion home. Unfortunately, she wasn't the only one. There were other women. One after another, after another, after another. In the southeast of Haiti, where we've met dozens of, of women, some of the most horrific rape scene ever. If it was one person, I would have fought even if it cost my life. And now, most of these people, they have a child or two child for someone that they will never see and they don't know what to do. Not all the cases were rape cases, correct? Some were relationships, but still the end result was a child being left behind. I wouldn't say relations. I would say some was consensual. But with the UN law, the soldiers, they don't have the right to get intimate with the local where they are deployed. Even you have consensual relationship, if that person is underage, it's considered as rape as well. We interviewed dozens of women, each of them, more horrific than the other. What kind of toll did that take on you? What was that like for you emotionally? I got sick. I got depressed because I have one sister. What if that happened to my sister? What if that that was my mom? I don't. I I I I cannot even think how I could cope with the situation like that. What was the UN's reaction? They investigated the cases, most of the cases in the South, and they had DNA tests, and they told the parents that they were right under a claim. And they still don't compensate. None of these people. And many of these kids now can't even go to school because their parents can't afford Last month, Haiti's president, Jovenel Moise, told Al Jazeera, Haiti has not given up on the cholera victims or these fatherless children. Haiti's position is clear. We want these people to receive compensation. There is a way of doing this. We are clear about wanting compensation both for the cholera victims and for the children who were fathered by United Nations soldiers and left their children behind in Haiti. The truth is, the UN may not be required to do anything. In the cholera case, a U.S. federal judge in New York ruled that the United Nations had immunity from offering compensation. We've talked a lot about the United Nations. It's, you know, this global organization. But there are literally thousands of charities, NGOs, other groups in Haiti, the Red Cross, There's USAID, there's the Clinton Foundation. A lot of them uh, did work there. So what happened to the rest of those projects? The the whole relief effort has been a complete chaos. A lot of corruption allegation as well. American Red Cross, half billion dollars to do housing project where they only built six houses. Yeah, and yeah, a lot of other humanitarian workers that got involved in sex trafficking. It's Haiti, 
Nobody cares. I can hear the frustration in your voice. And, you know, you said, no one no one cares. But, of course, the headlines say, you know, this this group pledges this and this country pledges this. But at the end of the day, on the ground... Even the president at that time was so frustrated with that situation. He wanted to tax every single dollar that was coming as aid so the government could find some money to do something because they were broke. All the money goes straight to international NGOs. No money to the government. I actually want to talk about the government, uh, the current one. The current president is Juvenal Moïse. The state that we have today is a predatory state that is governed by a few corrupt oligarchs who seek to control the key areas of development. Because the state is trapped, after my experience of two years and 11 months as the head of this state, I can tell you that this is the case. We've seen protests against corruption. Demonstrators have been blocking roads, stoning emergency vehicles, and destroying businesses. Public opinion today is demanding a different country, a different system, and it is fortunate that it is I who is at the head of this country today. I mean, President Jovenel is one of the most unpopular presidents that I've ever seen in Haiti. He was a lie. He was a con. Currently, we have the worst inflation ever. A lot of business are just closing down. Big hotels, the Best Western, the Oasis, like they, they're all bankrupt. Uh, he's under investigation for, for money laundering, Petro-Caribe money. President Jovenel Moïse is among those who have been implicated. Any company that has borrowed money, that owes money to a financial business, has a debt. I don't know why this is regarded as suspicious. Can you talk to us about the Petro-Caribe issue? Petro-Caribe is this program of the Venezuela government that was supposed to invest $4 billion in social project. That money was vanished in Haiti. And if you're the president, that lands on you. So he doesn't have any legitimacy. But, but it still has a very strong support of the United States. And, and now Haiti took another step uh, to another big political crisis. Haiti has no parliament now. So there will be like a complete power vacuum and the president will be the only one leading by decree. Jeremy, where is Haiti, in your view, now? What do you see the future looking like? I don't see an immediate uh, solution in Haiti now because it's like people are trapped. It's like the best way out for anyone right now is to leave Haiti. Since 2012, 2013, nearly half a million people left just to go to places like Brazil, Chile, Ecuador. It's a very disparate situation. Jeremy Dupin lives in Boston now. You're outside of Haiti right now yourself, but you still have family there, right? So what has that been like for you personally? It's just very sad 
to see how this country just going from bad to worse. Because Haitians are not allowed to take their own destiny in hand. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilve, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. And Graylin Bushier is Al Jazeera's head of audio. And if you like the show, subscribe. We have some links at aljazeera.com slash the take. And if you already have a favorite podcast delivery system, why not rate and review the show there too? It really helps us out. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at AJ the Take.